Welcome to episode 285 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration. And electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. 
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed, but with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 285 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey, Melanie. Cynthia, I have an important question for you. Okay. So... When you had your boys growing up, did they watch VHS Disney movies or is that more of a girl thing? Did they watch Disney movies? Yes. There's a reason I'm asking. Yeah, no. So they they DVDs, yes. And that was before like streaming was a thing. So were they growing up at all during the VHS phase? No. Mm-mm. Okay. So this might not be applicable. My sister and I... <laughs> had like a two-hour conversation about, have you heard about the Tinkerbell Mandela effect? 
No. Okay. This is not even relevant. Well, I will say, <laughs> I will put it out to the audience because I posted about this on Instagram and I don't think I've ever received so many DMs in my life about something. So are you familiar with the Mandela effect? Not offhand. Oh, it's so fascinating. It's basically the concept of memories that society will have that are not real. It started from this idea where apparently you would know this. Do you have a memory of Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s? I thought Mandela died in the 2000s because I was actually in South Africa when he was still, let me see, what year did he die? 2013. Yeah. Okay. So you are not part of that. So apparently a lot of people remember him dying in the 1980s. No, because I was going to say when I was in, because I was actually in Cape Town, I was in South Africa when he was still alive. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that's where the name came from, but there's all of these examples. So if you Google Mandela effect and there's a Wikipedia page about it, there's all these things where people have memories that are just not accurate. And it's a lot of like weird things where it's like, why would everybody remember this very specific thing? That's not true. It's a lot of like logos. Like people think the fruit of the loom has a um, cornucopia on the logo but there's not. People think with the Chick-fil-A that it's spelled. How do you think Chick-fil-A is spelled? Isn't it? Like, it's, it's like C-H-I-K. Right. That's what people think. It's not. It's C-H-I-C-K. See, you know what's interesting though? Like to me in my brain, there's a difference between knowing when Mandela died versus like fast food names. But I agree with you. I can see that. I remember in the VHSs of Disney movies, with the opening icon where it's the castle. I remember some sort of thing where Tinkerbell comes and flies and like dots the eye or like touches the castle with her wand. And if you go online and my sister remembers it, if you go online, there are like Reddit threads and boards, like hundreds of comments and YouTube videos with people being like, this happened. Like I remember it, but it didn't like nobody can find any footage of it. And when I posted it on my Instagram, I probably got 40 DMs of people being like, yeah, that happened. I have it in my DVHSs. And I had to respond to everyone and be like, well, if you find it, you're going to go viral because nobody can find it. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So I don't know. It is a rabbit hole. So listeners, if you remember this and if you have footage, please let me know because you'll like change the internet. Sorry, that's my random opening. No, no. I was going to say, were we spending time last evening thinking about this, contemplating? No, I I just had it on my to-do list to bring it up on the show because I literally went down the rabbit hole sort of recently. And then with the Instagram, I was like, I have to talk about on the podcast. I want to hear listeners' thoughts because we can have an audience of 40,000 people and I want to be vindicated in this memory. (laughs) But it's so funny, you know, when you said Mandela died in the 1980s, I was like, no, he didn't. I was like, I was there. Like, I, I wasn't there when he died, but I was in Cape Town the year that, you know, he passed away. So that that left an indelible impression on me. And, and if any listeners have ever been to South Africa or Cape Town, it's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been to. It's just so fascinating. Some of the other ones are like, people apparently remember some Sinbad genie movie that does not exist. And are you talking about the really bad, like 1960s version that has like very obvious faux creatures. Is it with Sinbad? Yeah. But not no, not the Sinbad like the comedian. Sinbad is in the Sinbad story. Oh, oh no. This is the comedian. Oh, yeah, no. Mm-mm. There's so and then like where's Waldo? Like people remember him incorrectly. There's just 
There's so many things. I find it so fascinating. Oh, oh, Fruit Loops is the way it's spelled. It's F-R-O-O-T, Fruit Loops. Is it really? Mm-hmm. My parents never let me have those cereals. I need to ask my mother this because we could eat the conventional cereals, like all of them, but we couldn't eat Fruity Pebbles because it, quote, had too much sugar. And I have no idea, like, didn't they all have too much sugar? Like, why was Fruity Pebbles different? Yes. No, my mom, my mom's first generation, and she was very strict about what we ate. Not per se in a bad way, but it was a very nutrient-dense whole food. Like, we were eating fresh-made bread and, and liver before it was in vogue. Wow. I'm jealous of you. No, I don't like liver. I, I, I to this day, I, I don't. I don't like, it's too metallic. I'm never going to be that person that can eat organ meats and do it with a smile on my face. I'm just being honest. I've thought about this a lot or talked about it with things. I would think that I would like organ meats because of the way I eat and they're so nutritious, but I just don't. Like they don't taste good to me. Yeah, it's very metallic. I remember, and I know you've interviewed Paul Saladino on your podcast as well. And one of the listener questions was, what is he eating? And he had just had like spleen and pancreas. And I was like, I think I vomited in my mouth. I was like, wow. Testicle. Yeah. I was like, that's so impressive. And I'm so impressed. But like, I could not do that. Not willingly. It reminds me of the guy who runs Ancestral Supplements, who's on Instagram. He's he's always eating all the organ meats. Mm-hmm. And Joe Rogan recently made a comment about him being on steroids or something. And he responded and he's like, no, it's all... It's all the organ meats. No, oh, jeez. More power to you, my friend. Yeah. Well, in any case, anything new in your life? No, just, uh, you know, three programs are like underway and it's September's always like a super busy month and I'm just grateful and hopefully my creatine will have a date for it to be officially launched. I'm just kind of holding my breath. Lots of little things along the way that we've had to, you know, dial in on to to make sure it's perfect to be able to share with the world. I'm so excited for you for that. And I'm so excited to start taking, because I've never taken creatine. It's like the one thing that's interesting is if you read the research on creatine, that's number one. I mean, there's real research, but I've been taking it consistently since I, so when I, I had my hip surgery in May and then I wasn't clear to go back to the gym until June and I didn't get back to the gym until like late June, early July and like I track all of my progress through an app on how much weight I can lift. And like I'm consistently going up by 10 or 15 pounds every single week. And that's with consistent utilization of creatine, which I'm excited about. Do you know like if a person, because I eat such a high protein diet, do you think I would still benefit from creatine supplementation? I think you could. I mean, and I've and I've had conversations with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon about this because I obviously I've had her her input on on some recommendations. We know if you look at research that menstruating women, so if you're actually actively menstruating, menopausal women, vegetarians and vegans actually need more creatine than those that are not actively menstruating, those that are not postmenopausal. You know, in terms of the research, I think most would would do well with at least three grams a day of creatine. And then if you're one of those people like vegetarian, vegan, because you just don't get enough exogenous creatine in your diet, they would likely need five grams a day. So there definitely there's differentiators for individuals. And you're still at an age where you've got peak bone and muscle mass. 
very different than if you're looking at a 40-year-old woman versus a 50-year-old woman versus a 60-year-old woman. So I think that you're you're at a position to be able to really maximize muscle mass at your age, knowing what you know, versus, you know, people that are a little bit older and it, they have to work a bit more diligently to build that muscle. Although it's interesting, one of the things that I've learned is as we get older, our protein needs actually increase because we don't pull as much. I mean, it, we just don't break down the amino acids quite as effectively. And so, you know, a 30-year-old like yourself, you may, you eat, I know you eat copious amounts of protein. Your body probably does a better, more efficient job breaking the protein into amino acids and assimilating them than someone at my stage where I might have to eat a little more protein to make up for the fact my body doesn't utilize it as efficiently. And that's something I'm constantly you know, thinking about. That's why it's so important you're hitting those protein macros as opposed to things we just take for granted. Our bodies just don't work as efficiently as we get older. We have to, you know, it's almost like we become a, you know, very fine-tuned car. And so there's less bandwidth with which to work within. You have to really be consistent to be able to see, you know, see efforts. Like I look at my teenagers who put on muscle effortlessly because their bodies are in this massive anabolic phase versus where I am, where I'm in more of a catabolic phase, unless I'm working against that diligently. I'm not sure. Did that help? It sounds like, especially as you're older, it's much more of a needs-based situation compared to maybe for me, just more of an optimization situation. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, then that's the beauty of being younger. Things just work at a more optimal level. And you don't, of course, we don't realize this until we get older and we're like, oh, I never appreciated that because I just didn't know. That's kind of how I reflect on the differences of what I knew 15 years ago versus now. I'm like, dang, had I known I would have lifted really, really heavy in my 20s and 30s. And whereas now it's like it requires twice as much effort to get enough of that muscle protein synthesis and a little bit of HRT definitely helps. Or it's kind of similar to like the next supplement I'm making with the NMN very similar in that I feel like when you're older, we know NAD levels are so depleted with age. And so you would definitely, from a needs base, be wanting to take it and in higher quantities compared to when you're younger. It just helps. It just optimizes everything. I'll be super curious in general with that, with creatine, with anything. I wonder what the effects are when if you do start younger and doing it consistently, you know, are you kind of warding off some of those deficit issues later? I would hope so. I mean, I, I've had whole conversations with my kids about the fact that, you know, one's almost 18, he's fully grown, he's six feet tall. And, you know, whether or not we're going to consider adding creatine. And that's that remains to be seen. I think when you're a fully grown adult, it's different than people who are still kind of growing in this massive anabolic phase, especially young men. Yeah, completely makes sense. Well, super excited for that to be available. So listeners, stay tuned. And when it is available, you think it will be on your website? I think that's the the general plan. We're going to actually create a lead page so that people can get on the list for when it goes on sale because we do anticipate it will sell out. And so they'll get you know the first rights of purchase over other individuals. All right. Shall we jump into everything for today? Absolutely. All right. So to start things off, we have a question from Leah and the subject is ship food. And I don't mean cruise liner. Leah says, good morning, Cynthia and Melanie. I'm a Navy sailor. And so is my fiance, Chris, who is actually on deployment right now. He is totally on board with IF. Ha ha. 
I think your pun is funny, Leah. And he says, and, and tried to start it while he was out on the ship, but it's difficult because meals have set times when the galleys are open and the food is definitely not choice food. Knowing that IF is here to stay for me, even if when I should wind up back on a ship, and that he very much wants to get into shape and stay that way, so IF will probably stick around for him too, I have questions about supplementation and the absence of being able to make better food choices. For those of us who don't have the ability to get food that is good for our bodies, is there something we could use to give our bodies the nutrients needed? Examples would be anything fresh in the way of fruits and veggies. For my fast deployment, I remember it being difficult to find spinach and the salad bar was often quite sad and fruit was really, really rare. Everything was ultra processed and the breads were all the cheapest white breads. Rice too was low quality. Now that Cynthia is on the show as a resource from the healthcare field and knowing that Melanie is all about the food choices, I wonder if either of y'all would have ideas on how to be as healthy as possible without access to whole foods or farmer's markets or such things as I've started to utilize after learning about food industry things. God bless your tangents, Melanie, that led to your other show. I fully intend to utilize some of the supplements I've already experimented with while looking for foods that had the things like iron in the form of beef organ supplements and Melanie's magnesium that I also got my mom onto, yay, and try others as I go along, but my knowledge of supplements is limited to what I've learned from y'all. There's also powders for greens and things, but I don't know how to sift through them. Haha, ha, you can tell I love dad jokes and buns and learn which ones are good and which ones are not worth it. Basically, assume I'll get some form of meat, pork and chicken, and occasionally ground beef, limited to one or two servings per meal, and that's about it. Everything else will need to be something I provide myself. This is daunting. Sorry, all Leah. Well, Leah, thank you to you and Chris for all that you do to help protect us as a nation and for Chris's current deployment. When I read through your question, I thought immediately of Athletic Greens, which is a product that I myself have used over the last two years. And for full transparency, I think I've tried everything on the market and I'm not exaggerating. And I find most greens powders are incredibly herbaceous to the point where they're not palatable. Athletic Greens has been something that myself, my husband, my kids have been able to utilize. And I think it's a really nice balanced way to get quite a bit of vitamins, minerals, and greens powders into your diet, especially if you're feeling or perceiving that when you are deployed, you're really limited in your fresh fruit and vegetable options alongside with protein. So I probably would, you know, I probably would make one investment as opposed to multiple investments and at least try it out. I think that's a good first step in order to kind of flesh out the options that you have available. And plus it's convenient because they have little packets that you can just throw into water. So you don't have to throw, you don't have to have a a blender. You can literally throw it in one of their shaker bottles and use some filtered water and you've got a really clean option that you can utilize. It's high in ORAC, so like high in antioxidants. And it tastes good, which is most important because if it tastes good, then you'll consume it. Awesome. Yeah. Speaking to the athletic greens. So I personally, I actually haven't tried them or used them, but I knew Cynthia was a huge fan and they approached us about wanting to support the podcast, which is awesome. And I was like, oh, I know Cynthia loves them. So we will have a code for them because I know they're on your other show as well. In general, Cynthia, do they normally have a discount code? Because we don't know right now 
as of this recording, what our offer is going to be? Is it normally a discount? Typically what they do is they give you a free vitamin D and then travel packs. That's part of using the discount code. So it's really convenient because for me, I don't like to have to put things in plastic baggies to take them with me. There I can just throw the travel packs in my luggage or in my bag and it's totally portable. And who doesn't need more vitamin D? Let's be honest. Awesome. So by the time this episode does air, there will be a spot for it, an ad for it in this episode. So either look in the show notes and or listen to that when it plays and probably a few minutes and it will have the offer. So check out that link for the offer for that. I would supplement that, no pun intended. I'm a little bit unclear if she can just bring supplements or if she can also bring packaged food type situations. Because basically the way I would approach this is maximizing, I know you said you're limited on how many servings of meat that you can have, but maximizing all of the servings of meat that you can get. The nice thing about meat, and this is something that Rob Wolf talks about a lot, which is that even the worst quality meat, and I know there's a lot of issues with conventional agriculture, and I could go on a whole tangent about that and problems with it and how it's not humane and the environment. And I'm not just saying that that's not a problem. That said, conventional meat is still very nutritious, which is great for protein, vitamins. So I would maximize all of the meat that you actually can eat. If you can bring actual packaged food with you, some things you could bring would be, I don't know what the stores are called different places, but like at Kroger and Ralph's and places like that, you can get salmon pouches that are in these, I don't remember what the brand is. They're like packets and they're salmon. And the good thing is, They don't say wild caught on the, or they might. I have read that canned salmon and packaged salmon tends to be wild caught actually. So I would get like those packets. Those would be really easily transportable. Other protein sources like jerky sticks and things like that. I know, isn't there a brand that you like for jerky, Cynthia? I love Paleo Valley. Like I'm devoted to Paleo Valley. I love Paleo Valley. We'll include a link in the show notes. That's my favorite by far. Okay. Awesome. So that would be an option as well. Then also, if you feel like you're just not going to get enough protein, this might be a situation where you want to bring a protein powder. So I've had on my shows, both John Jaquish, as well as Dr. David Minkoff, they both have a protein powder supplement. That's a complete protein powder without additives. Dr. Minkoff's is called Perfect Amino. I'll put a a code in the show notes for that. So for that, you can go to melanieavalon.com slash perfectamino and use the coupon code melanieavalon. So that might be something to try. And then moving beyond the actual protein. So the second aspect of it would be like what Cynthia was talking about with the athletic greens. So getting those greens related nutrition and then some. So I do think the athletic greens would be an amazing way to go. Something else might be spirulina tablets. So I were actually currently in development to create a spirulina that I will have produced in part, which would be very exciting. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I love and listeners have really loved Catherine Arnston's energy bits. She is awesome. Yeah. So I really like those. Listeners really love those. And those are really, really rich in nutrition. Do you have a code for them as well, Cynthia? I do. I just, I literally just had a podcast drop about a week and a half ago from her. So we can include that. Yeah. I know mine for that is 
energybits.com with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 20% off. And mine's Cynthia Thurlow. Perfect. So either of those will get you 20% off. And then, like I said, we are hopefully developing my own, but I think that algae situation is a really great way to get really concentrated nutrition in a very travelable form. Another thing to consider might be nutritional yeast. If that's something that you like, that is, well, first of all, I find it so delicious, but it is just like super high in all of the vitamins, including B12. So it can be great for vegetarians and vegans, which I know does not apply to you, but that's another great option. Although I personally really advocate getting a version without folic acid because a lot of them are fortified with folic acid. There's one brand I really like called Sari, S-A-R-I. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But that's all the things I would look into. I think that's very comprehensive. Awesome. Well, hopefully that was helpful for Leah. Shall we go on to our next question? Absolutely. This is a question from Jasic. The subject is fasting without water. Could there be some health benefits to prolonged not drinking anything? I mean, not even water. Do you know of anyone who seriously considered that or is it just assumed that there are none? Seems to me all the evolutionary arguments usually given in favor of fasting apply just as well also in that case. All right, J6. So thank you so much for your question. I'm actually very surprised by the lack of scientific literature looking at this. I thought there would be a lot more studies than there are. All I could find, like as far as like large studies go, I found a 2020 study called Dry Fasting Physiology, Responses to Hypovolemia and Hypertonicity. And then I found one called Effects of Daytime Dry Fasting on Hydration, Glucose Metabolism, and Circadian Phase, a prospective exploratory cohort study. And do you know if it's Baha'i? Is that how you say it, Cynthia? B-A-H-A-I with a lot of interesting punctuation symbols, something in India, I believe, Baha'i fasting. So in those volunteers, and that was a 2021 study. It was nice reading the studies. They also noted in the study that there's not a lot of literature, which I, not that I like reading that, but it makes me feel better about not like completely missing something when they're saying that, yes, indeed, this is not very much explored. So the 2020 study was a very small study, but they basically looked at five consecutive days of dry fasting that's a long fast, preceded by two days before where they ate normally and then three days after where they ate normally. And they were just basically looking at their their biomarkers and were trying to see if it had any negative effects on everything that they were experiencing. And they concluded that it was essentially safe to follow and there, there wasn't anything too concerning. And then the follow-up study was the one they talked about in, the, in those Baha'i fasting people. And what it was noting was that a lot of the studies on fasting are typically on people fasting for Ramadan and that this Baha'i fasting situation was actually a more appropriate way to look at dry fasting specifically. And they as well found that it's safe. It has no negative effects on hydration. It can improve fat metabolism and it can cause transient phase shifts of circadian rhythms. The improved fat metabolism is something that I think people talk about because you will hear about people dry fasting and it's come up in a few different books that I've read and it is advocated. And I say this like hesitantly because this is what quote they say, but like I said, I couldn't find many studies on it. They say that you will burn more fat if you are dry fasting and the concept, or at least one of the theories is that 
when you're not taking in water, your body needs hydration. And so we can actually create metabolic water by breaking down fat. And this is actually something that not in the context of dry fasting and weight loss, but Dr. Rick Johnson, who Cynthia and I both love, (laughs) he actually talks about this whole process of metabolic water created from fat. And so that study that I referenced in the Baha'i people who are fasting, they did find when they compared the data to Ramadan fasters that it seemed like they said basically in Ramadan with weight loss, it can be all over the place. Like sometimes people lose, sometimes they don't. In this Baha'i study, everybody seemed to lose and they posited that potentially dry fasting could lead to more weight loss than not dry fasting. So yes, my takeaway, it sounds like when it's studied scientifically, that it's probably okay and safe from a health perspective. That said, I can totally see that people might have issues with electrolytes. So please don't go by just that. I mean, if you're going to dry fast, go by your body and how you feel. It's possible that you might lose more weight dry fasting than not. We definitely need a lot more research on all of it. Do you have thoughts, Cynthia? I do. And it's interesting because the conversation that I had with Rick Rick Johnson, when we talked about the camel, everyone assumes the camel has water in its hump and it's actually fat. And so that metabolic water that's created as the camel needs food was fascinating. And I think in many ways really shifted my thought process about dry fasting. Now, with that being said, I think dry fasting is absolutely positively a more advanced technique. This is not for newbies. This is for people who are very attuned to their bodies. I think that dry fasting is something that's employed by a lot of influencers that are out there. And I think you have to be very mindful of your own baseline health before you start utilizing that. If you're someone that's prone to orthostatic dizziness, you're dizzy, you get lightheaded, probably not the strategy for you because part of dry fasting is not ingesting any water and there's hard there's hard dry fasting and there's soft dry fasting. Let me explain the distinction. Did not know about that. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. So I, I've been down a rabbit hole about dry fasting. So soft dry fasting means you still take a shower because you are still absorbing water when you are showering, right? If you are a hard dry faster, it means you are not bathing or maybe you're, you know, quickly washing your armpits and other areas that need washing, but you're not, you're really not getting in a shower. You're not getting in a bath. You're not absorbing water through your skin. You're very, very devoted to the process of a hard dry fast, which is designed to be exactly that hard. It's my understanding that a lot of people were so conditioned to being hydrated during the day. I know I'm very water focused all day long, which is why which is why more often than not, if I do a long podcast, I have to run to the bathroom when I'm done, just empty my bladder. But with that being said, I, I think this is absolutely a strategy that we probably need more research on. It's not one to be entertained by people that are new to fasting. That's my personal opinion. I think it's a strategy that should only be utilized by people who are ready for that kind of fasting because it is going to be a bit more vigorous than a traditional water fast for 24 hours or a water fast for 48 hours. And you really have to understand that you may lose weight during a dry fast, but as soon as you hydrate, that's probably going to just kind of equal out. So I, I think it's it's being very clear about what are you trying to do. A lot of people are like, oh, I want to do dry, I want to do dry fasting because I want to lose more fat. And and that's all fine and good. But I, I think for me personally, 
although I have tried dry fasting, I'm the kind of person I really enjoy drinking water. So it's more, it's actually harder for me not to drink water than it is for me not to eat food because it's such a part of my lifestyle. So I think, you know, there's a lot that remains to be seen. I would imagine a lot of the, you know, big intermittent fasting community probably would be aligned with what we're saying that we need more research. This is a more advanced technique. In fact, I'm in the midst of creating like an advanced intermittent fasting, either webinar or series or class or something. And dry fasting will absolutely positively be part of that. I wish they would do some, you know, randomized controlled trials and really trying to figure out if this, this theory about dry fasting, creating the need for water, and so breaking down fat to create metabolic water that we otherwise wouldn't have broken down. Like I would just love to know if that's actually what's happening. Because if so, it's potentially a very nice tool in the toolbox to do smartly. But it would be nice to know if that's actually the case <laughs> or if it's just some people are not drinking water. And so all the weight loss is, you know, more related to dehydrated cells. I'll be excited to see what you continue to learn and with all that, especially if you do integrate it into some of your programs. Yeah, it's definitely, it's on the to-do list. And every week my team and I have a meeting and every week we say, Cynthia is going to table this till next week. I was like, that's right. It's one of those things. Yeah. It's like, I have a long list of things I want to do and I can't get all the things done in my life. So it'll happen eventually. So my assistant for the biohacking show emails me every Wednesday with an updated list of you know, guests are reaching out to and where I met with certain guests. And there's some people that I just table every week. I'm like, ask me next week. <laughs> ask me next week. But as long as they're on the list. Yeah. I mean, there there's the things that have to get done. And then there's a long list of things that should get done. Awesome. Shall we go on to our next question? Absolutely. So the next question comes from Sarah. Subject is fasting and pregnancy. And Sarah says, hey, gals. You've covered bits and pieces of this question and other podcasts, but I'd love to hear what you imagine would be a good beginning to end protocol to follow once one discovers she is pregnant. I'm not currently with child, but if I was, for instance, do you immediately stop fasting when you get pregnant and immediately is in all caps? When is it okay to start fasting again? I know fasting while nursing is a no-no, but when is it okay to resume? How do you resume a more typical all-day eating schedule? Do you talk to your doctor at all about fasting? Inquiring minds want to know. Very best, Sarah. Well, Sarah, this is definitely an area that I talk about in my book and certainly across social media. I feel very strongly that when you are creating a human or feeding a human, it is not the time to restrict your macro intake. So if you found out at six weeks that you were pregnant, I would stop fat. This is this would be my best recommendations. Of course, I would discuss this with your physician, OBGYN, et cetera. My general recommendation would be when you find out that you're pregnant, you stop fasting. You're in a position where you are growing a human. And especially at, you know, the, you know, the the key areas of neurodevelopment, you don't want to be restricting healthy fats, protein, et cetera. And from my perspective, when you're done breastfeeding, I think it's absolutely fine to resume intermittent fasting. I know that I have never had a larger appetite than I did when I was breastfeeding. I have two boys. I've breastfed both of them for a year. And I jokingly used to say I could eat like a linebacker. I've never been able to eat that much food since then, but I, I cannot fathom and this is not judgmental. I'm just saying I cannot fathom how you could get by with fasting and breastfeeding because I ate 
copious. I mean, I probably had three or four meals a day, large meals, and I was still hungry. And that was even not even with exercising. I just walked when I was breastfeeding. I didn't even go to the gym and lift. So I, I think from that perspective, stopping when you find out you're pregnant with fasting, resuming fasting only after you're done breastfeeding, and having a conversation with your healthcare professional. I've spoken to many, many, many physicians and researchers about this, and we're 100% in agreement about how important it is not to be fasting while pregnant and not to be fasting while breastfeeding. So at that moment when they find out they're pregnant and they immediately stop fasting, do you have a recommendation for how they resume that all-day eating schedule? I think just having like a 12, like having three meals and maybe having a 12-hour eating window, I think is is absolutely fine. I don't encourage anyone to, you know, stuff themselves, but when you're actively growing a fetus, the idea of being restrictive about behavior is one that's woefully unaligned with fetal development and neurobiology and and all the things that I know. And, and certainly I'm not a researcher, but in conversations with so many experts, I feel very, very comfortable saying I would not recommend fasting. So I think a 12-hour digestive rest kind of formulation, same thing I tell women five to seven days preceding their menstrual cycle, if they you know, back off on the fasting and and just have a 12-hour eating window. I find a lot of women actually do really well with that. And 12 hours should really be the minimum for all of us that whether we're fasting or not. Like there should just be 12 hours of digestive rest. It's a great way to optimize digestion. And for a lot of women in pregnancy, they start struggling with constipation. You know, they have a lot of reflux. They just, you know, especially as the fetus is growing and it's putting more pressure on their digestive organs, it can make eating more challenging because they just can't eat large boluses of food. So they may find that they have to eat a little more frequently, not in a negative way, but they may find that they tolerate maybe a slightly smaller meal and maybe they're eating every four to six hours in that window. So I had two boys that are 26 months apart. So I had an 18 month old when I got pregnant with my second son. And I remember I, I was one of those people that when I breastfed, I was working part-time as an NP and my options in the hospital were either to have time to pump or eat. So for the first year of my older son's life, I pumped in the hospital while I was rounding on patients and I really didn't have time to sit down and eat a proper meal. So I ate, you know, whatever I could grab on the go. And I'm not suggesting women do this, but it was either I ate a protein bar or I ate nothing. And so I ate a lot of protein bars on the days I worked And so by the time I got pregnant with my second son, I had no adipose tissue. I was very skinny. I don't recommend anyone do this, but I didn't even realize it was so subtle that I had really lost all my fat stores because they were being utilized to create breast milk. And so I recall my first, and, and I was underweight for where I normally was. And the first trimester with my second, I gained, I want to say I gained 10 pounds and my OB wasn't worried because he knew, he just said, I think your body had to get back to a certain level of body fat to be able to sustain a pregnancy. And I just kind of mindfully ate. I remember there were certain things I craved, but I didn't crave junk. And it was mostly like protein and carbohydrates. And that's really what my body craved. So I think each pregnancy is unique and different. I was surprised at how good and active I was throughout my pregnancies. I know not everyone may be in the same position, but I was pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly surprised. Do you know if there's a concern about if a woman is breastfeeding and 
losing weight of the toxins from the fat stores going into the breast milk? I mean, that could be. I mean, that certainly could be a possibility. I think that this is why we want our health really optimized before we become pregnant. I think a great deal about the fact that I have one child who has life-threatening food allergies, so it weighs heavily on me. Was there something I did that you know made him more susceptible to developing food allergies? I think every mother blames themselves. There's something I must have done that created this, even if, if empirically there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. But I think if a woman is already obese and she gets pregnant and she's potentially releasing some of these toxins, whether it's heavy metals or estrogen-mimicking chemicals, et cetera, absolutely, I think about, and I don't have current research on this, so I can't speak to it beyond just thinking in my my knowledge about what happens through lipolysis. I do think that that would be of concern if someone was unhealthy and became pregnant. And, And it also speaks to the fact that people who are metabolically unhealthy are more at risk for, you know, certain pregnancy complications, gestational diabetes, and, you know, certainly women that already have PCOS as an example are at greater risk for complications, you know, related to a multiplicity of factors. So I think the big takeaway from me is get as healthy as possible before you become pregnant. I know sometimes that occurs randomly and sometimes people don't have the the, the planning per se is maybe not in place But it's certainly something, and that's why I think prenatal nutrition is important. Prenatal care is important. I think it's important to to be thoughtful about if you're choosing to have a child that your health is really optimized before becoming pregnant. I'm, I'm in some ways, I'm grateful. I don't know. I didn't know as much as I know now back then because there's a lot that I that I think about. But you know, from a de facto clinical perspective. Absolutely. I mean, everything is intertwined. And and we used to think about adipose tissue as just being its own organ, but we didn't think about how sophisticated it was. We didn't know. And now we understand it's highly inflammatory, full of cytokines. There's all sorts of inflammatory matter that you don't want to have released into breast milk, ideally. But having said that, certainly people have survived through the millennia without knowing as much as they do now. All right. Shall we answer another question? This is a question from Rebecca. Subject is 16-hour daily fast enough for weight maintenance. Over the course of the past two years, I lost 100 pounds through Weight Watchers. I found that I enjoyed eating bigger meals, so a lot of times I ran out of points by 2 p.m. and unintentionally fasted intermittently in order to make Weight Watchers work for me. A coworker asked if I had ever looked into intermittent fasting since I was already doing it many days per week without realizing it. Now that I've already reached my goal weight, I started tracking my fast with a goal of 16-8. Most of the time, when you two recommend smaller windows to listeners, it seems to be for weight loss. Since I already have my portions under control and have been maintaining my weight for seven months so far, I wanted to ask how important is it that I try to increase my length of daily fasts? I think what I'm asking is... Is it okay if I just enjoy my life on 16-8 since I feel great and I'm at a healthy BMI? I feel the pressure to only eat one meal per day since you both follow this plan, but I'm resisting this idea. Asking me permission to stay where I am. Thank you for your podcast and your books. I bought both of them. And I just want to note that this question actually came in while Jen was still hosting. Yes. The comment about only eating one meal a day was the protocol that Jen and I follow, although we debate the terminology of (laughs) of what constitutes one meal a day. So I actually could answer all of this just in one word, which is yes. 
it's okay. Like you, you have permission, Rebecca. But the longer answer is, I find it really interesting. I feel like probably Rebecca, and I think a lot of people might experience this, especially in the dieting world, it's safe and comfortable to exist within a specific plan. So, you know, Weight Watchers was a really regimented system and it worked for you, which is great. And congratulations on losing 100 pounds. That's incredible. So that probably felt very safe. And while existing in that, you were doing what the system told you to do and it worked. And so now you're, you know, at a weight that you love and a BMI and you feel great, but you're not quite doing the the system that has been attributed Although historically, I hope we haven't given this impression that you can only lose weight on one meal a day because that's not at all the impression I would want to give. So hopefully we can clear up that confusion. But there's probably this idea that sticking to that protocol instead will, again, it brings that safety as the thing that you should be doing to have the weight loss. But there's all of this theory and conjecture and what people can say will work. And then there's what's actually working and what you're doing right now is working. So 100%, you are totally fine to be living your life on 16.8 and having that for maintenance. And you don't need permission. You can grant yourself permission for anything you want to grant yourself permission for. I'm all about listening to your own body. So please don't feel the stress. A reason that you might want to do a longer fast, I wouldn't even say for the maintenance or the weight loss. It might just be a therapeutic longer fast. So maybe you want to get some of the health benefits of increased autophagy and just a longer fasting window from that perspective. So that's the reason I would do a longer fast if you wanted, but I wouldn't for the maintenance. Thoughts, Cynthia? No, I think that was a beautiful explanation. Congratulations, Becca, on your sustained weight loss. That's incredible. And, you know, I come at this from a similar slash different perspective. I, I think that a lot of what is important for sustainability in terms of weight loss is getting sufficient amounts of protein in, and that's much easier to do in two meals a day. And so if that's working for you, I think you should experiment. If you want to do an 18-hour fast, a 16-hour fast, a 14-hour fast, you want to do a 20-hour fast, I think that one thing that I, I think is very important is that we not get into a widget where we only do the same thing every day. We don't eat the same foods every day. We don't eat, We don't do the same exercise every day. I think it's important that we honor and nourish our bodies with some degree of flexibility. And, you know, one of the ways that you can do that is just to play around with your fasting window. And if you don't feel like doing a longer fast, there's no pressure to do so. I I think that being very clear about what your goals are, what's important to you, you're not looking to lose weight. And there's a lot of research to demonstrate this kind of law of diminishing returns. If you're already at a healthy weight, doing prolonged fasts, you know, finding, you know, where exactly that middle ground is in terms of, you know, how much benefit are you getting from 24 hours of fasting or 48 hours of fasting? If you're not looking to lose weight, you can end up losing muscle. Muscle is pretty important for women. I don't know your age. So that's another another piece of the puzzle, but I think you're doing a beautiful job. And I would just encourage you to experiment to find what works best for you and your lifestyle. Yeah, I thought that was great. And we actually have another question that sort of relates to all of this from Heidi. Would you like to read that, Cynthia? Absolutely. Subject is learning your body. Hi there. I've been off and on for intermittent fasting for a year or so. For some reason, I keep giving myself reasons to stop. Anyway, I've been listening to your podcast and reinforcing what I know about the process. My question is, I keep hearing you mention to listen to your body and it will tell you what to do. 
keep fasting, eat what you want to eat, etc. How do you learn to know what you're listening for? How do you become more in tune with what your body needs? I can get through about a 62-hour fast and feel pretty good, but not sure how to determine what my body needs after that. Any suggestions are welcome. Thank you in advance. Heidi. All right, Heidi. So this is a great question and it ties really well into what we were just talking about, especially because I think it provides a little bit more nuance and complexity to what we were just saying about potentially switching things up or listening to your body and making those decisions. Because I think on the flip side, so while we want to support everything that we just said, I think people can also get into a space where maybe having some sort of paradigm to exist in that does have more delineated, I don't want to use the word rules, but does have some sort of parameters, I think can be very, very helpful. Because on the flip side of, you know, listening to your body and, you know, living intuitively, some people can do really well with that and they really will just fast as long as they need to fast and eat when they need to eat. Some people won't. Some people need some sort of guidance. And it sounds like for you, so you, you know, you've been doing IF on and off, but then you you don't stick to it. You give yourself reasons to stop. But then you also can do like a 62 hour fast, which is very long. Um, so so clearly you are able to fast. There just seems to be some sort of, I guess, I don't know if it's like cognitive dissonance or just inability to find the protocol that is something to stick to while still being intuitive. So What I would suggest, and I hope this doesn't undo everything that we were just saying, is if you want IF to be a part of your life, I would subscribe to a daily fasting window that maybe has flexibility in the parameters, but it would still be a daily fasting window. So rather than fasting and then not fasting and then doing a 62-hour fast and being confused about what to do and then worried about what to eat. Maybe, you know, deciding to, I'm going to fast daily, maybe around like 16, eight, and then having some sort of flexibility surrounding that. So, you know, maybe fast a little bit more one day, a little bit less one day, but I would find something that you can stick to that actually can provide some consistency. And then within that consistency, being more flexible. If your goal is that you want to have IF as a daily part of your life, I wanted to talk about this with everything that you were saying, Cynthia, is... I think it can be hard for people because we can say, be intuitive and listen to your body, but it's kind of like what Heidi says, like, what does that actually mean? And so I think some people actually do benefit from picking some sort of system and then being more flexible within that system. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And and one thing that I think is important for listeners to understand, we can talk about bodily intuition and intuitive eating, intuitive fasting, but if you're not metabolically healthy which is most people, you know, most people are, I think it's 92 to 93% of people are not metabolically healthy. You have to get those hormones balanced first. And I agree with you hundred percent that you need some type of a system to work within before you're going to be ready to intuitively fast, eat, et cetera. I think we do a lot of disservice when we expect people who are not metabolically healthy to be able to intuitively lean into what their body is telling them because you know, there, there's this lack of insulin sensitivity. There's, you know, profound food cravings that go on. They're not sleeping well. They've got stress management issues. There's so much to unpack there. And I say this with love. There, this, is, this comes from the most loving place in the world. But if you're feeling like you're struggling with the concept of intuitively doing anything, it's because 
your body's not in a place yet where it's ready to do that work. So until that point, I would have systems in place and it doesn't have to be complicated. It could be as simple as I'm going to check my blood sugar after I eat a meal. If I'm still feeling hungry and my blood sugar is high, then it might be that I had too many carbohydrates. It could be that I need to ratchet down on a portion of something that's going to mitigate and improve some of those symptoms. And so we could have a whole episode just talking about these things. But I think it's important for people to understand that those processes and those symptoms take time to lay down. I think even for those of us that are metabolically healthy, I'm always changing things up. I'm usually transparent after the fact as I kind of you know, work through carbohydrate tolerances, exercise, et cetera. And so I think we always have to invite ourselves to to change things, to not feel like we have to be rigid and dogmatic. And I think dogmatism is a huge problem, whether it pertains to a particular nutritional dogma or fasting in general. Sometimes people don't realize that they're so rigid that they're they're no longer serving their their primary needs of why they're embracing a particular philosophy or strategy. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains eight forms of magnesium and their most absorbable forms so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption as well as chelated manganese because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers including rice which is very very common in a lot of supplements including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium eight at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, Serapeptase. You guys, love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. 
That was so perfect. That was exactly what I was trying to say. (laughs) It's very rare that I hear something. Well, probably shouldn't say it's rare. It is rare that I hear something within the, the type of content that I tend to consume where I think it's a concept that could be doing a lot of damage. And I, I think there's a lot of potential damage that happens with messaging surrounding intuitive eating. Like I was listening to one podcast and they were basically saying that you should be able to eat these, you know, processed junk type foods like intuitively. And like, if you can't, then that means you're not an intuitive eater. Like basically like you should be able to have the cake and just have a little bit of cake. But some people would be better off just not having the cake because, <laughs> because having the cake will create factors in their body that creates a completely different metabolic state that then you have to fight against. I'm all about the intuition coming in with knowing how you exist in your relationship to food and fasting and knowing what you need. Do you need systems or not? Do you need rules or not? And then living within that. And so it sounds like for Heidi, coming up with a more like picking an actual system to stick to might be something that would work well for her. Absolutely. Alrighty. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. The show notes for today's show will have all the links that will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 285. And again, by the time this comes out, we mentioned Athletic Greens, which is a new supporter on the podcast and the amazing offer from them will be in the ad. So, so listen to that. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. Yes, I think that is all the things. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, keep the great questions coming. We've been really enjoying all of the feedback and great questions we've been receiving. So keep them coming. I could not agree more. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.